And it's that time again. Time for another episode of Songs You Should Know. 1969 today. Yes. And why is that? <laughs> I, I don't know. Well, oh, hold on a second. You do know. Oh, yes, I do know. Because <laughs> we, we apparently go in uh, years of three. So we did Jim's birth year, 63, my birth year, 66. And we said, hey, 69, a lot of stuff happened. Well, it was a lot of stuff was going on in rock and roll during during that year. So, so yeah, songs from 1969. But uh, the year, the year that you didn't introduce ourselves. You didn't introduce ourselves. No, you you are. I'm Jimbo. I know. And I'm the mixer. <laughs> and now, and I know. <laughs> and <laughs> now we'll know. talk about some some of the things that happened in 1969. It is that year that uh, Tricky Dick was inaugurated. <sighs> Yes, it was. I'm not a crook. <laughs> <laughs> On the rock and roll side of things, though, it was also the year that the Beatles gave their last public performance on the roof of Apple Records in London. So a couple of epi- episodes ago, we did 1963, and we had... Uh, um, the Beatles on that episode, and here it's only six years later in history, and the Beatles are giving their last performance. So that all occurred in a very, very short period of time. Well, time flies when you're in a rock band in the 60s. <laughs> what happened in May? Well, in May, <clears throat> um, in 1969, we will... I'll jump forward to everybody knows that Woodstock was that year and that uh, in, in December was Altmont. But first, in, well, I don't remember, in May, was right. Zip to Zap, Zap, North Dakota, which was a precursor to Woodstock. And uh, I, I didn't even know until I learned about this years later that North Dakota had a uh, National Guard because they got sent out to this gathering, which was young people. Uh, a lot of young people uh, at a music gathering, and it was it was out in the middle of nowhere too. I mean, Zap, North Dakota. There's nothing there, and so the whole idea of the zip to zap was all these young people driving across North Dakota for this outdoor concert. And then things got kind of out of hand, and they called up the National Guard to put down a riot. <laughs> it's the only the only riot the Na- National Guard has ever put down in North Dakota to there this day. That's because we keep the riffraff out of that state. That's why we make it 30 below for a reason. <laughs> but also uh, notable quotes from uh, 1969 is, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Of course, from uh, Neil Armstrong. And uh, I'm walking here. I'm walking here. It's Dustin Hoffman and Midnight Cowboy. Yeah, great movie. I love it. And then the t- the term headbanging is first used during Led Zeppelin's 69 tour of the U.S. And also at the same time period, Grace Slick was the first person in history to say the F word on American TV. Now, I don't know how you'd verify that because maybe somebody else slipped through. But uh, in August, uh, yep, Grace dropped the F-bomb. So Yeah, and um, it, it didn't say what uh, program it was on, but... Uh, and then you know, also with the with the moon landing, uh, well, you know, or the proposed moon landing, but somebody came up with yeah with this fact that it would have been harder to fake the moon landings than to actually land on the moon. Yes, 
conspiracies are not easy. <laughs> they take a lot of <laughs> they're, thought. Effort. They're, they're easy to spread around, but they're not easy to create. Real ones. No, they take time and money, like anything. All right. Well, we're going to play the three songs that we're going to be talking about this time, or just a clip from each one, and then uh, we'll get started. Right. And our three songs are... Ground control to Major Tom. Ground control to Major Tom. I let the who run a little bit long there because I wanted to hear that, hear Pete come in on the, on the, or was that the, the bass that comes in there? I'm not sure. Um, see. I mean, when they played it, when they played it live, it was at, when they played it live, it was in Twistle coming in right. because Keith would have, I mean, yeah, uh, uh, Pete. Pete would have been doing the, <laughs> doing the, the acoustic long... intro there. But, yeah. Uh, or maybe he did. Maybe he switched over to electric for that for the live performances. I can't remember. I'll have to go back and look now because the the Who were uh, you know their instrumentation was a power trio. All you have is a guitar, a bass, and drums, and then Roger Daltrey's voice over the top of that. But right. um, anyway, the first song, however, is Bowie. Ground control to Major Tom. This is this is totally a random thought. Do you ever listen to the Flight of the Concords? Are you familiar familiar with them? With who? Flight of the Concords. Yeah, I love that show. <laughs> <laughs> well, they they had a they had a song called Bowie that's hilarious. You've got to look that up too. So, yeah. Anyway, getting back to <laughs> getting back to the real content of the show. <laughs> and obviously, this song, even though it's called Space Oddity, many people refer to it as Major Tom. That's right. And it's uh, it's five minutes and 15 seconds, which is fairly long for... Uh, or anything so, we've covered so far. Yeah, so far. And I uh, wanted to tell them about... Bowie's inspiration for... Well, sure. Well, Bowie in 1968 saw Stanley Kubrick's movie 2001 A Space Odyssey, which, of course, is based on the Arthur C. Clarke classic um, novel. And I I was always a science fiction buff, so um, had to see both the movie and read the book. Um, but hence the, the title of the song, which he changed to Space Oddity. Um, and there were a number of versions of this that were recorded in London, and it was released in July of 1969, just days before the Apollo 11 moon mission. But Bowie has claimed, or claimed over the years, that that really wasn't necessarily planned, but that was more of a coincidental thing. But it did mean that the BBC used the song during its moon landing coverage, you know, so it probably worked out well from a marketing standpoint. 
Well, yeah, that's kind of cool. <laughs> Here's what we thought of. Why don't we use this song? Yeah, so maybe the conspiracy around the moon landing was that it was all part of a marketing campaign. It was all part of a song, a <laughs> fictional song. Ha! I knew it! <laughs> right. Now, of course, Bowie's on this, but there are some other, a couple of other interesting uh, musicians uh, on the recording. One of which, which especially I was not aware of. Which was Rick Wakeman, who played the Mellotron. And, of course, Rick Wakeman uh, later became famous uh, in Yes <clears throat> as her keyboard player. The rock band Yes. And then there was Mick Wayne on guitar, Herbie Flowers on bass, and Terry Cox on drums. Um, but, yeah, I, I did not realize or, or had never come across the fact that that's Rick Wakeman on there. So No, but, I mean, that's kind of cool because let's, if you're uh, familiar with Rick Wakeman, uh, he used to, for sustain, he would put knives into his keys to, to hold them down for sustain. So there you go. <laughs> I thought that was, that was the guy from Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Oh, well, let's edit that out then. <laughs> <laughs> oh no let's keep it yeah well, <laughs> that's not what he's talking about again I, <laughs> i'm not sure if i'm right or not but i thought that was from emerson lincoln well Palmer. actually no, we'll no, take, i'll have uh, to look it up <laughs> man you're gonna are you gonna okay. you gonna take it <laughs> we yeah, don't have to look it up right yeah. now <laughs> that's right no. I'll take it. I'll take it from here since I've done a good job to start with. <laughs> well, you can redeem yourself. You yes. take it from here. So uh, this is Bowie's first single to chart uh, in the UK, reached number five there. It didn't crack the top 100 in the US. It was actually re-released in 1973, and it reached number 15 in the US. So apparently, we don't care much about <laughs> space well. oddity. <laughs> Or maybe there was so much going on in 1969 that it just, couldn't, it just couldn't uh, stand out above the, the pack, you know. But, um, right, and then uh, the lyrical meaning, take this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently you, know, you listen to the song and, and um, there's something about the loneliness of outer space or the, the, the overwhelming feeling of looking back at Earth and then at the vastness of the rest of the universe and... Major Tom just drifts away into space. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> yeah, that's what you know. Being fairly young, listening to this song, so I'm listening to it, and I mean, I, I thought he did a very good job. The whole song, like you said, you feel like you're out in space, you're out outer space alone. And if you listen to the song, I was so bummed because it's like, you know, your circuit's dead. Can you hear me, Major Tom? It's like, dude, ain't coming back. He's right, just he's out. Just Drifting away. Huh. Now, I've always wondered about this whole thing. Uh, the, all the papers want to know whose shirt you wear, because I've heard two different stories on this. You know, one, obviously, he would be some sort of, as an astronaut, would be some sort of cultural icon, and everybody would want to know all these facts about him, like what shirt, you know, or what designer he, do you who's wear? Who's he wearing? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. But um, at, at, in other places, what I saw was, well, no, it's it's comes from the whole English slang for what football team do you follow? What soccer team? So whose shirt do you wear would be whose jersey um, do you, you know, for what team do you follow? So I, and I couldn't quite nail down which, which interpretation or whether Bowie had ever, you know, confirmed one, one over or the other, but. Uh. Yeah. And that's weird, you know, I mean, it's not weird. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's common because if you think about the U S traditions, look how many people wear, you know, jerseys of their favorite football team or 
uh, sports team. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And then uh, the the song was repopularized in 2013 when astronaut Chris Hadfield performed the song aboard the International Space Station. And I I learned from that that they keep a guitar on the International Space Station. So yeah, I didn't know that. I guess I wonder if they keep drums up there too. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe not. Now, the interesting thing was that if you if you record a song up in outer space and then you want to release it, in this case on YouTube, um, who, <laughs> what jurisdiction does that fall under legally? So. They, they they put it on YouTube for one year, and then the video was removed in May of 2014. And by that time, Hadfield was back on Earth, and he worked to negotiate a new deal with the song's publishers. And then in November of that year, they reached an agreement, and they were allowed to put the video back on, on the site. <laughs> but <laughs> no one – and I think it comes down to the fact that it, it had so many views, and then – the, the publishers, of course, want to be compensated for some of that. Oh, yeah. So YouTube inserts <clears throat> videos and advertising and everything. But if it's not clear legally who has rights, then the question is, who's that money going to go to? So they had to negotiate a deal so that the advertising would, would that's, provide that's funny publishing. Because we know that ASCAP and BMI have rights. Yeah. So yeah. They want to get paid. So, a little bit of trivia about the song. David Bowie's birth name was David Jones. But you couldn't really be Davy Jones when his career was was getting rolling because of the monkeys and Davy Jones. What? <laughs> That's right. So, but tell tell people how he did choose a name. He said uh, the name Bowie comes from the Bowie knife, which is a sharp cutting name inspired perhaps by Mick Jagger's name, which I didn't know because there was such a thing as a Jagger knife and. Uh, Later, in the 80s, Bowie and uh, Jagger later collaborated on a cover of Dancing in the Streets. Have you seen the the version of Dancing in the Streets on on YouTube where it's all replaced with, uh, they're just whispering it, basically? (laughs) (laughs) What are they, yeah, what is the name of those episodes? It's called either bad lip syncing or... Yeah, right. right. But I, this one I don't think is a bad lip syncing one or a bad lip reading. This one is... Uh, this one, they just... They they sing the same words, but they replace the soundtrack with... Other people. They're just kind of, they're yeah. just kind of whis- whispering really quietly yeah. through the song instead of being big and boisterous. And it's hilarious. Know, it it's, is uh, hilarious. I should have pulled a sound clip from that. Uh, yeah. You have to see... It's hilarious. You have to it see is. the visuals with it. <laughs> Oh man! All right, hey, we'll be—we're going to come back in just a minute with yet another song. Yes, we are. Ground control to Major Tom. Ground control to Major Tom. Thank you. 
So who on earth gets the wild idea that not only are, are we going to write the first rock opera, but the, the main character is going, going to be deaf, dumb, and blind, and he is a pinball wizard. I mean... I'll take <laughs> Pete Townsend for 500, please. Alex. But I mean, what frame of mind do you have to be in to, 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 to just, you know, are we just staying up late one night and deciding, let's just throw together the most ridiculous thing we can? Well, <laughs> it was 1969. Let's face the facts, kids. He may not have been yeah. drinking just tea. So uh, it was recorded in February of that year in London. And then uh, in May, it was released. And this one comes in in only two minutes, 57 seconds. It's it's a pretty quick trip, but it it is given in the context or presented in the context of quite a few songs that all segue in and out of each other as part of the, the story of, t- of Tommy. Tommy, yeah. And, of course, the uh, the musicians, the, the main Who members, Roger Daltrey, Pete Townsend, John Entwistle, the Ox, and Keith Moon. And, of course, uh, John and Keith are no longer with us. but yes. They had a 50% survival rate so far. For that wow. band, <laughs> and that ain't bad. The way I see it, you still got two out of four members of the Who at work, and that ain't bad. Yeah, and they're the main singer and the the songwriter. Right. So I guess you know, although although John Entwistle did write write once in a while too, but uh, um, some hilarious stuff too, right. by the way. But. It's kind of like Kiss. <laughs> you still got Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, the song reaches number four in the UK charts and number 19 on the US Billboard Hot 100. And, you know, if you listen to the lyrics and you you read them, you know, a pinball champion. So it's told from the point of view of a pinball champion, not from Tommy's point of right. view. A it's another kid who. That's right. A com- yes, another kid. And he's marveling at the abilities of Tommy, the deaf, dumb, and blind kid who can play without distractions, you know, doesn't hear no bumps and bells, but he can play by sense of smell, basically. So, and this went on to be, boy, quite influential. The, the entire rock opera Tommy did, not just Pinball Wizard. I, I right. chose uh, Pinball Wizard as, as the example from there. But, sure. um, um, and the song was later performed by Mr. Reginald Dwight. Elton John. In, uh, John. In, yeah. in Russell's 1975 film adaptation of Tommy, and uh, right, you've seen the movie, and for those out there have seen it, that was my first uh, introduction to Tina Turner as she played the Acid Queen, and I was hooked after that. <laughs> there you go. Uh, well, and before before they had actually made a movie version of it, then the Who had been touring with it, of course, playing the entire thing, but. Then they got the idea to actually do a stage version with an orchestra, and uh, Rod Stewart appears in that. Wow! And and uh, he he performed Pinball Wizard in the orchestra version. I would like to hear a copy of that sometime. Me too. We'll we'll probably have to do some Rod later because man, that guy's oh, yeah. voice—he is one of the best cover artists. I mean, and, we, and we've talked about this before growing up, but I mean, we'll de- definitely do some stuff on this. When he covers songs, he's all in, man. His voice is just superb. Yeah, he's a he's an interesting story, um, in, which we won't go into right now. No, but, no. Uh, we don't it, have time, it's, kids. It's, <laughs> 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 uh, 
Um, yeah. So, you know, we were talking about all the different elements that went into the song and how would you, why would you possibly want to put all those things together? And uh, even Pete Townsend later on looked back on it and said it was the most clumsy piece of writing he'd ever done. And and yet, it, you know, now it's considered a classic. But uh, well, a masterpiece, no, he, yeah. I mean, and even he, even he went back and looked at it and went, "Boy, I don't know what I was thinking there." <laughs> well, and uh, you know, I guess I don't understand this one, but the single version. So when they released a the single, it was slightly sped up and runs to two minutes and fifty-seven seconds, while the natural length on the uh, album is three oh one. Because yeah, fellas, it's just two four seconds too long. So yeah, I, you know it's <laughs> always, always always curious about that. I think there are, there were, there's something about um, on vinyl Ew. that uh, what the spacing the spacing that you want to have uh, between the grooves sometimes you can get away with getting one less revolution around or a couple of less revolutions around the cutting. And therefore, everything gets well, to groove. expand out a little bit, and and, and and has and has a little bit a little bit more space, and that affects the fidelity of everything. Now, I, I've heard stuff like that before, wow. but I didn't go back and look to see, you know, why. So you're saying that the single is less groovy than the album. <laughs> I got it. Perhaps, yeah. And and of course, being being a single, it, you know, it, you're you're on a different size recording medium, a different size record. So I, I suppose that for some reason it. The fidelity on the 45 was better if they sped it up and, and made right. the song slightly shorter. And since you're a, a huge Bruce Springsteen fan, Bruce. Yeah. So Bruce uh, references the song in uh, Fourth, of Ju- Fourth of July Asbury Park, which is also known as Sandy. And uh, so on the album Greetings from Asbury Park, you've got the lyric, and the wizards play down on Pinball Way. So there's a, a reference already from, from very early Springsteen. Yeah. Who tribute? And with that, well, we're going to take another real short break, and we're going to come back with one of your and I's favorite groups. Yes. The Rolling Stones. <laughs> full of a lot of iconic riffs that was that was definitely a highlight there absolutely and of course it yeah. comes in with the good old cowbell exactly well and like you said it's the timing of the cowbell he's not just hitting it and we'll talk about actually who's hitting it here in a second right right because i boy it would be really tough to do that and swing into that drum beat but right. uh, yeah so Jagger and Richards are on holiday in Brazil, and they start putting this song together. It, and uh, 
Actually, what they start putting together sounds nothing like this, but we'll get to that in a second too. But uh, it's another one. It's another one. Of, it's another one of those songs that comes in in just a shade over three minutes. They, uh, they, it's two minutes seconds long. Two, two seconds, two seconds longer than Pinball Wizard yeah. on the album, but several seconds longer even than the single version. I'm just looking at the math here. Three minutes and three seconds it comes in at. See, there you go. They let them do it. That's because they're the stones. Well, <laughs> and probably the the absolute fidelity of the record was not a primary concern at that point to them. Huh. So probably not. <laughs> the sloppier, the better. A little more raw and sloppy going on there. Yep. Right. So Mick Jagger comes in. Keith Richards, of course, um, with his open G uh, tuning five-string, five-strung guitar, which if you're a guitar player... This is the iconic sound of so many Stones um, songs, just that whole idea of I'm going to tune the guitar so it's in an open G chord, which both is is nice for slide playing as a blues player, but it's also allowed Keith to come up with different voicings. And this is the technical part of this. Because, because it's an open G, that means the root string is the second string, the, the G string, it's tuned to G, uh, and it's not what would be a D string up on top, which nope. is an E tuned down to a D. So I know it doesn't make a lot of sense, but f- forget that heavy, fat E string, which was tuned to D if you, if you keep it on, and then you play G, D, G, B, D, going from low to high across the, across the neck. And eventually... Keith had a lot of actual five-string guitars made that don't even didn't even have That's a right. slot for the sixth string to be pulled off. And not only just any guitars, but the good old Fender Telecaster guitars. Five yep, string. a lot of telly, a lot of telly sound going on there. And then uh, this, the the version that we hear was really introduced um, later on in the year after Brian Jones had left the Stones. And then, of course, Brian died several weeks later, and the Stones had been planning a a free concert in Hyde Park, and it ended up being a memorial for Brian, which wasn't not how it was planned originally, but that's what it ended up being. And it was the debut then of the next guitar player to join the Stones. 20-year-old Mick Taylor, 20 years old, and at that time, uh, Mick Taylor had come from John Mayhall's Blues Breakers, which is no slouch himself. He's he's definitely an iconic legend in blues, and especially in, in England. But So for a 20-year-old to get asked to join, at that time, the, the world's most popular rock and roll band, he did. Yeah, and uh, contributed a lot of really iconic things as well. And Keith always preferred preferred having and prefers to this day having somebody to to play off of um sure. you know to to interweave those guitar lines and then of course it's charlie watts on on drums and bill wyman on bass and uh that was the second classic incarnation of the rolling stones after the brian jones era yeah um and then uh, did you ever hear of reparata and the del the del runs <laughs> 
Not on purpose. No, I mean. <laughs> no, that's that's that background, you know, female vocal thing going on in the background there, and um, and then also Nanette Workman is in there as well. But uh, maybe I don't know if that was just a studio band name or what. Right. But, uh, and then Doris Troy. There's another female on there, yeah. and then uh, the famous. Um, if anybody else has, you know, the the rights to be called a, a Rolling Stone, um, that we haven't already named, it's uh, Ian Stewart, Stewart, who who uh, played piano with them forever until he passed away. So, uh, and then we get to the cowbell. We get to the famous cowbell by the one and one and only Jimmy Miller. Yep, Jimmy Miller. Did he produce that track? Was that why he was? He must have produced them during that time. He produced Exile, right? But I'm thinking of this time he may have produced this one. Well, see, the thing about uh, Honky Talk Women was that it was released as a single. It wasn't actually. It wasn't on any particular album. Wasn't on. So I don't. I don't. Yeah. Not until you know later. Greatest greatest hit compilations and stuff. Because uh, the actual. A song that is on uh, Let It Bleed is Country Honk. And right. do you have a... I do. We'll, we'll, we'll play it in just a second here. Okay. We, we, we don't want to leave out Steve Gregory and, and Bud Beetle on saxophones. Because that would that, be rude. Well, you know, the interesting thing about the Stone sound is that, you know, we've got this very raucous rock and roll, but there are always horns in there too, um, thickening things yes. up. So... You know, there's always horns involved. And the song reaches number one in both the U.S. and the U.K. And Rolling Stone magazine at the time calls it likely the strongest three minutes of rock and roll released in 1969. So that's saying something because it's also the year of, you know, Led Zeppelin doing a lot of stuff and, and a lot of other bands. There's a, lot of, a lot of new music or, you know, a lot of different music being released in 69. and. Sure. America was going through a a revolution of its own. It's ranked number 116 on the list of Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time, which uh, came out in 2010. I think they really should update that. You know? <laughs> it's been a few years now, They and there, I'm sure there have been maybe a few songs from the last few years that... And Correct. some re- reassessment of some other songs, you know, that would, that would be interesting to see that. Right. So, of course... A honky-tonk woman refers to a dancing girl in a western bar who may work as a prostitute, uh, thus setting the narrative in the first verse of the blues version uh, in Memphis, Tennessee, while Country Honk, which we talked about, is the actual uh, song that made it, that is on the album of Let It Bleed, uh, sets the first verse in Jackson, Mississippi. Jackson, Mississippi. Jackson, Mississippi. Why did they change it to Memphis, Tennessee? I don't know. But, uh, Sponsors? You know. I don't know. <laughs> you know, were the hookers? Maybe the hookers were boycotting them in uh, Memphis. And the the uh, influence other people that that covered this song. Uh, Ike and Tina Turner did a really cool version. Waylon Jennings does an awesome version of it. Wow. Um, Joe Cocker, Elton John did it, and uh, Prince performed it occasionally as well and i do have a little bit of that yeah that's that's (laughs) 
Now, compare that with the original version of the song, Country Honk, which I'll play right now. There we go. There we go. And? There we go. A jar and Jackson. Had a little jar and Jackson. With the car going by honking. Yes, the honk. <laughs> <laughs> All right, tell me about this interview you saw. Right, so, it, and this was recently, I did see an interview with uh, with Keith and Mick, and they're reminiscing about the early, the early, early days. And uh, Mick and Keith are talking about when they were in Brazil. And Keith mentions to uh, Mick that there was a gal that was hanging around them at the time. And uh, I believe she was part of the inspiration because Keith called her the, the original honky-tonk woman. And from the look that, that Mick gave Keith, uh, I think apparently Keith knew her better than Mick did, at least according to <laughs> Keith, or at least that was led on in the story. So there you go. All right, and the story finishes out here with a little over five years later, Mick Taylor, the 20-year-old, now 25 going on 26, <laughs> leaves the band, quits the Stones. And apparently, I mean, it wasn't like there were huge arguments or anything. It just was, uh, I think, in interviews I've seen with him, and, and Jagger and Richards didn't really know that at the time, but it seems like later on, um, Mick Taylor was sort of worried about being able to handle being a part of that whole Stones lifestyle and all the, the craziness that went on and, and the excess that went on. And I think he, he was kind of worried that um, he wouldn't survive that. And as a 25-year-old, you know, young person, he that might might have been right. Well, yeah. I mean, but, and think about that. I mean, he joins at 20. He leaves still at that time, probably the, the still most popular rock band around. And he's 25, and he decides that the right thing for him is to not be a stone anymore. And then, uh, of course, they pick up Ron Wood from uh, from the Rod Stewart of the Faces, basically. And uh, Ronnie's still the new guy in the band. <laughs> yep. And he's How many little brother. That's right. And... Uh, <laughs> I do remember this from the uh, Hyde uh, Hyde Park concert, uh, the tribute to Brian. Ronnie Wood was there, and yeah. I've read either in his book or somewhere where he, where he says he knew that day that he was going to be a Rolling Stone someday. And five years, well, we know how the Stones work. It wasn't really five years later. I believe he played on Black and Blue in '76. He was on the Love You Live tour in 77, and they officially announced him as a member in 78, I believe, something like right. that. Right. He just sort of gradually <laughs> seg- segued into the band. Yeah. <laughs> it won't go away. We, we, I guess we got to keep All pe- right, we're going to be back. We're going to be back in a minute with a little bit of trivia and uh, and some fun, and, and we'll cool. leave it at that. We will. 
right, we're back with a little bit of trivia. We can the part of the show where I get to test test mix knowledge. That's right. <laughs> All right. Do you always rub your hands for luck? Is that the? Well, it, <laughs> let me say this. It sounds like my hands. It could be my head because there's no. <laughs> oh, I guess that's true too. Uh huh. Yeah, you have you you do have a a top surface up there that uh, would lend itself to rubbing for luck. There you go. Many people have tried. So. All right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> the topic of of uh, this little bit of trivia is who stones the Beatles. Nobody. That's wrong. <laughs> Which basically basically means uh, the answers in general are either the, either the Who, the Stones, or the Beatles. Uh-huh. All right? Okay. So, number one, which group recorded the song Pictures of Lily in 1967? The Who, the Stones, or the Beatles? Pictures of Lily, the Who. <laughs> Which is a, an interesting song about self-stimulation, actually. Can we say uh-huh. that on the? Can we say that on the air? We can. That's probably why I liked it. I figured that out after a couple of times. <laughs> Pictures of Lily. Yes. All right. Which group had a hit with the song? And uh, it's do 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 do, and then each do is spelled with two O's. D O O. Heartbreaker. The Rolling Stones. Yes, the Rolling Stones. Do do. Really cool. Really cool uh, keyboard intro into that. That. Yes, it's a synthesizer-y type of thing that comes in there. Is that okay? Uh, go ahead. I forgot my yeah. button. Yeah. Who, who played keys on that? That's uh, Billy Preston. I, mean, about. I was wondering if it, that would be that would be a Billy Preston sound. <clears throat> Should be that time, you know. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So, 1961, the song "Twist and Shout" was first recorded by a group called the Top Notes. Okay. Which of these groups that we're going to list did not do a cover of the song? The Beatles, The Who, or The Stones? So two of them did, but one didn't. Well, I know that The Beatles did. You do? I, I knew that. I, I, I can't see The Who doing Twist and Shout, but I could be wrong. So my can, guess you see is, the, can you see The Stones doing Twist and Shout? No. <laughs> <laughs> But, but I can see the who less doing Twist and Shout. Oh, well, um, the Rolling Stones are the only one that didn't cover it out of those three. The who did Dang actually it. cover it. <laughs> see? That's funny All on right. a couple of different levels, but go ahead. Since we mentioned Pinball Wizard, you have to com- complete the lyric here. Ever since I was a young boy, I've played the silver ball from Soho down to blank. Brighton. Brighton, I must have played them all. Ain't seen nothing like him in any amusement hall. <laughs> that damn I'm black kid. All right, which, um, you know, the, the famous Drifters song, Under the Boardwalk, came out in 1964. One of our groups came over, came in 1965 and covered that. The Beatles, The Who, or The Stones doing Under the Boardwalk? Mm, I will take The Beatles. The stones covered under the boardwalk. Are you purposely? Yeah, I could say something that won't make sense to anybody. I missed that the first time, too. (laughs) (laughs) I did. I knew I did. You really do have some short term memory issues, don't you? All right. (laughs) Roll Over Beethoven was recorded by both the Stones and the Beatles, and of course, many others. Who actually wrote and recorded it first? 
Jerry Lee Lewis, Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, or Paul McCartney and the Beatles? Roll over Beethoven. Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry. Chuck of course Berry. it is. All right. Some songs uh, we end up knowing by a different name just because one of the lyrics stands out so much. So one of those songs is Bobbo O'Reilly from The Who. Yeah. What's the name that most people know of that song by? Teenage Wasteland. I think. Right. There we go. Yes, it is. All right. So in 1967, the Beatles released Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. The cover is a collage of famous people. How did they pay tribute to the Rolling Stones on the cover? So on the cover of Sgt. Pepper's, is there there a door painted half red and half black? Is there a wax figure of Mick Jagger? Is there a sweater that reads, Welcome to the Rolling Stones, or Welcome the Rolling Stones, excuse me? Or... Does it feature the Stones' cover um, to their album Aftermath? Hmm. You know, I've seen that album cover thousands of times. So for some reason, it's the sign that says welcome rolling stones or the well it's it's a sweater yeah but it's, it's you're right there it we says go. welcome yeah. welcome the rolling stones it's a sweater yeah. <laughs> <laughs> me and the boys chipped in and got you a sweater all right two more okay. according to the who in the opening lines of i'm free what am i waiting for you to do i'm free and i'm waiting for you to show me the way follow me talk to me or stop talking wow um, let's go with I'm free. Show me the way. It's follow me. Do you know the story of Tommy? He's he's charismatic. People follow him. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> you just forgot. Yep. <laughs> I think when you when you were a little kid you used to say I forgot. <laughs> I did forgot. <laughs> All right, last one. Which of the following, since I was an English teacher, I can ask this, okay? Which of the following Beatles hits contains an antonym? Penny Lane, Hello Goodbye, Yellow Submarine, or Obla Di Obla Da? Uh, What's the second one again? The second one was Hello Goodbye. All right. So an antonym is opposite. So let's say hello, goodbye. It is hello, goodbye. Very good. Okay, there. Points points are all made up. No, it's the, yep. the rules are made up, and the points don't matter. Something like that. Oh, that. All right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's like the three. It's like the three years I spent in the fifth grade. <laughs> all right. Well. If you want to find out more information about any of these songs, one of, one of these days you'll be able to go to songsyoushouldknow.com and we'll actually have more information there. Right now you can just go there to get the episodes. But uh, otherwise, you know, it's not like we're born with this information in our heads and we have access to the same interwebs that you do. So yes, like everybody else, you start out with Wikipedia, you head off to song facts, you just do some Googling and you'll find lots of fascinating stuff out there. And sometimes you, it may, it may uh, spark your memory and you realize that you already knew that. That's right. Wikipedia and the, the entire internet. So keep on Googling. 
peeps. All right. All right. Until next time. All We're right. Out. Talk to you later. Songsyoushouldknow.com. Thank you.